From BYU Broadcasting's Performance Studio, this is Highway 89. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thank you for joining us today for a Highway 89 Extra. And in the old days when there were newspapers, you remember those, don't you? They would stand on a corner and say, extra, extra, read all about it, meaning there was really big news. That's how we feel about today with members of the King Singers in the studio with us. In 1968, six recently graduated choral scholars from the King's College at Cambridge made their London debut. And the group, the King Singers, now in its 50th year, has featured 24 singers as members over the years. Their repertoire is unusual for a group made up of such impeccable musical craftsmen, a mix of popular music that never would have been touched by some other choral ensembles, and some startlingly lovely arrangements of well-known classics and commissioned material by some of the world's great composers. They're Grammy winners, Emmy winners, they hold a place in the Gramophone Hall of Fame. And 2018, as I said, marks 50 years of wonderful music recorded and performed by the King Singers. And as part of that celebration year, we're thrilled to have two of the singers with us today, baritone Christopher Gabitas and tenor Julian Gregory. Thank you to both of you for coming today. Pleasure. Thanks, Thank you Stephen. so much for having us. We've invited them to share some of the music they're making during this special year, including some selections from a new 50th year multi-CD collection of recordings called Gold. In fact, let's hear some right now. This is Prayer of King Henry VI. We've just heard the prayer of King Henry VI from an album called Gold, a box set celebrating 50 years of the King Singers. I'm speaking with Christopher Gabitas and Julian Gregory. Christopher, you sing second baritone with the singer since 2004. Longest tenure right now? That's right. As you've seen in your time in the group, when there's an opening and an audition, are you trying to replace a particular sound or are you just looking for whichever voice will fit well and, and the sound changes over time? That's a good question, actually. We, we don't really like to talk about replacements. We prefer to speak of successes, ah. mainly for the reason that you mentioned, which is that you can't replace somebody's voice. Each of the singers who've been in the group has a unique yeah. sound and a unique voice and all have been marvelous in their own way and i suppose what we try to do is develop the continuity of the group sound in a very sort of organic linear manner by choosing one of the candidates who auditions who best fits into the lineup and the sound will change subtly the principle remains the same but of course when one member leaves and a new one joins it's likely he'll be a bit younger so you might have a more youthful energized quality to the voice in certain ways but equally one person leaves five remain so the bedrock of the sound will continue right so uh, you're married three daughters with your wife stephanie who you met we understand in the u.s 
I did. She was on the front row of a concert that we performed in 2004 in Lexington, Kentucky. Well, we're glad we could help you out with that over <laughs> Thank here you. on this side of the pond. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a shock. It was a great surprise, but you, you never know when lightning's going to strike. You, so you, you studied and worked as an attorney as well. I did. How much did those careers overlap? Was there considerable time they overlapped? No, not really. When I was still at high school, my singing teacher said to me when I was about 17, um, Chris, if you can do anything other than be a professional singer, please do that. Mm. And I don't think she was being <laughs> offensive. I think uh, <laughs> I choose to believe that what she was trying to say was that, uh, and she's since confirmed this, music will find you if you're supposed to do it. Mm. But it's very important never to resent music. It's an excellent servant and a terrible master. And if you have your goal of being a professional musician, that's fantastic. But you should never let it eat away at you. So I went to university, did a law degree, whilst continuing as a choral scholar at uh, St. John's College in Cambridge. So I was singing the daily services, but I was reading law for my degree. And so I made it my mission to qualify as an attorney, to make sure that I had that professional qualification, always to have in the background, as it were. And also to learn those skills, because I was fascinated by the art of being a lawyer and the way that it taught you to think. And I think that that stood me in very good stead when joining the King Singers, uh, which, which happened just after I qualified. The timing was very <laughs> serendipitous. Mm. And even though my colleagues may not always like it, I think I bring a certain analytical benefit to bear <laughs> I like on group discussions. Thank, thanks, Julian. <laughs> and later in the program, I'm going to hear one of your arrangements, which I had picked out as one of my favorites from Thank this you. set. I'm very pleased we get to do that. More than 1,500 performances with the King Singers. Can you remember your first? Yes, absolutely. I think every King Singer remembers his first performance. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Julian can speak about his as well. Mine was in the, the wonderfully grand opera house in the French city of Bordeaux. Which, which I liked because I'm quite a big fan of that area in France. Mm. And uh, it, it was a, a very cold February day and we had an early flight out from London. And I can remember most of the elements of that day. I don't think you forget that. It's an extraordinary experience. We'll speak more with Christopher Gabitas in just a moment. Uh, Julian, you were the second newest, I mm -hmm. understand, mm -hmm. in the group. You knew the group as you grew up. That's right. They came to my high school um, to do a concert um, back in 2005, I think. Um, so at this point, I got to know them really well. Yeah, I guess uh, they inspired me to to think more about a cappella music. As it happened, I was focusing on the violin and, and other areas of music and solo singing. And then miraculously, after my postgraduate degree, they, they found me, I suppose, to use Chris's analogy. <laughs> do you have a set number of days that you'll tour during a given year? So we have around about 120 concerts a year. Mm -hmm. And what with travel and, um, you know, touring logistics, that basically translate as about 200 days of touring a year away from home. That's a lot. Yeah. Especially, <laughs> you know, Chris with his family job. and everything. So. We'll speak more with each of you. Yeah. Very fascinating histories, each of you, and wonderful musicians. Let's hear another piece. Chris, would you set up We Are? This one, uh, I mean, this one just leaps out of the gates. Thank you. Well, really, just to refer back to the piece that the listeners have just heard, the first piece we perform harks back to our history, and it's often used as an introit to this day in King's College in Cambridge, this particular setting. If you happen to be in Cambridge and you go to Evensong at King's, more often than not, you will hear this as being the staple introductory piece of music for a service. And fast forward 576 years, and you have a piece written by Bob Chilcott, former tenor in the King's Singers, former chorister, and choral scholar at King's College in Cambridge. So that link and the, the thread of time and history is, is so strong. And Bob chose to set wonderful words by the American poet and civil rights activist Maya Angelou. And in this piece, uh, he, he sets a poem of hers called The Human Family, although he calls it We Are. And the central tenet of the text is that no matter our creed, colour, race, religion, size or shape, colour of our eyes, you name it, whatever it is, our tasting clothing, we are more alike than we are unalike. And for us, as we travel around the world, we've learned that no matter what the territory, no matter what the language, we're actually a lot more similar than you might think. We are I note the obvious differences in the human family. 
Some of us are serious, some thrive on comedy. just heard a piece written by Bob Chilcott, a former member of the King Singers. We are. Lots of great tradition. Chris, you were just telling us the history of these particular pieces, but there must be this weight of history with what you do. Not just that the group has been together for decades, but English choral music is such a strong tradition. There is. And in a funny way, it doesn't weigh that heavily on our shoulders, I don't think, because you're exposed to it at such a young age. As Julian was saying, we join these boy choirs at the age of seven or eight years old, and it just becomes a natural part of your life. The same mm. as waking up in the morning, brushing your teeth and putting your clothes on. We did that, and then we went to a choir practice for an hour before school, essentially every day of the week. And I think if you're exposed to it at a very young age, it, it does become part of your psyche, and it just becomes a very natural, habitual thing to do. And we're hugely blessed to have that in our culture because... Hardly any other nations really have that. And I guess you have to have that as a backdrop because part of what the group does, it seems to me, is sort of shake up some of those traditions. Yes. Um, it's interesting. We've been, uh, for this gold season, we've been analysing <clears throat> and revisiting what the group, what its sort of fundaments have been over the years when it first formed in 1968 and indeed the years before that, which led to the formation of the group. And part of that is having tradition versus kind of new really mm. and trying to trying to celebrate both in good measure because you know on the one hand you don't want to be completely traditional um, and bound by that because in a way then you know you need to create a link between um, old and new and you know for example in our case 16th century and renaissance polyphony music how do we make that relevant to you know an audience of 2017 yeah it, it one is. way is just to do it stunningly well <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, we, we try to do that. And other ways are, you know, um, juxtaposing pieces from old with new. And, and, and as, as Chris eloquently demonstrated with the uh, prayer of King Henry VI and We Are, you know, that's a really nice link there, um, over 500 years apart, and yet really quite a, a good pairing, I think. We do, we do another piece by um, Sir Richard Rodney Bennett, which is The Seasons of His Mercies, um, which, um, again, can be juxtaposed really nicely with, with sort of, Renaissance music as well, 
particularly Renaissance um, homophony, because of the the spacing of the chords um, are very similar. So again, jumping between centuries is actually, it makes a lot more sense than you might think. Chris, you were part of the group for the 40th anniversary celebrations. I was. Does 50th seem like more of a landmark? Uh, I certainly feel a bit more tired than I did 10 <laughs> years ago, but that could be the advent of three wonderfully energetic daughters into mm. my life and a few more grey hairs. I think... 50 is a very special anniversary, either for a person or for a a marriage or for an institution. And partly it's just our modern base 10 system, isn't it? I mean, everything goes in fives and tens. That's just a sort of mathematical anomaly in many ways. But we like to mark our time as humans. We love a sense of community. And in The King Sings, we have this wonderful community with a huge sense of longevity, and we love a good landmark. And so I think the the, the reality of our situation is we're very, very fortunate to be um, riding this bus at such a juncture in history, because we're just the custodians of the group at this point in time. You join the group, and very quickly, if you don't already realise, it becomes apparent that there is a a weight of history and tradition, as you put it. And you have to wear it as lightly as possible because you have to believe from day one that you deserve to be there and that it's right that you're in that position and you have the skills and the talent and it's just up to you to to, to prove yourself and to not, not to let the fans down because mm. equally quickly you meet people who will say things like, you know, welcome to the group, I've been following you since 1973. <laughs> and you, you think, you know, well, that that's wonderful and I, I really do need to step up and do my best for these these fantastic people who've been the lifeblood of the King Singers for so long. And I think an anniversary is a really good chance to give back. It's a chance for us to have a lot of fun artistically, commercially, geographically, by touring all around the world. But equally, it's a chance for us to thank our loyal friends around the world for their support over, over some over 50 years, the full 50 years of the group's history, and to produce material which we hope will remind them of the old days, remind them that we're still going strong and to think to our future as well, mm. but also to present them with much-loved material, perhaps in a slightly different way. One way fans are having a lot of fun is with hashtags called Gold Stories. And we've seen a few of these popping up. And you can check this out as you listen on social media, hashtag gold stories. And uh, I'm wondering, do you have some gold stories of your own memories of a particular performance or that just stand out to you or an unusual venue, perhaps? I suppose, um, well, just to give you an idea of the the gold stories, they are, um, we thought it'd be a good idea once a week for the duration of this season to release a story which was an interesting story from the history of the group. So we reached out to former members back from the founding times in, in the 60s and 70s. And so they've all written in giving, you know, just a short little, a, a funny memory or a story, an anecdote um, from their time. For me, a particularly special moment would be actually the first time um, we sang with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Mm. Of course, you know, world-renowned, incredible group of singers. And just getting to be in the King Singers at the front of the stage with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir there, it was just the most overwhelming experience. You know, we occasionally collaborate with choirs, but to collaborate with such a vast, you know, 365 singers, one of the best choirs in the world, in that in their home space to a full house, that was a real, that was a really special moment. And I'll treasure that for years to come. Let's hear another piece. I wonder if you would set up this next song, which is from the venerable English composer, Billy Joel. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, so um, we, we're a big fan of Billy Joel. A number of his songs we've had arranged in-house within the group. And So It Goes is an example of that. Um, Bob Chilcott arranged this piece. It's become somewhat of a of a King Singers classic now. I remember, in fact, being in, in high school and, and university singing this, arrange, this exact arrangement. And so the first time I, I sang it with a group, it was a really special moment. I think we love singing it, really. Um, it's just such... The words are so real and, and touching I think that the topic of unrequited love is it's always going to be um, you know a, ten, a tender one um, <laughs> yes. and, it, and you know a lot of um, our fans and audiences really appreciate um, hearing this song so yeah and, and it's the way it's the way Bob arranges it it's just so simple and relatively pure homophony and it allows the group the King Singers to make their their classic sound which is one of my favourite um, sounds that we cover within our palette of sound worlds so yeah i I hope you enjoy it and so it goes by billy joel 
So It Goes by Billy Joel, arranged by King Singer's former member Bob Chilcott. That's from Gold, which is a brand new multi-CD album celebrating the 50th anniversary season of the King Singers. You can check them out online at kingssingers.com. That's two S's in the row in the middle there. Our guests in studio today are Christopher Gavitas and Julian Gregory. 1965... There was a sort of a prelude before you were officially the King Singers, and I love the name Scola Cantorum Pro Musica Profana in Cantabrigiens. I'm doing my best to slaughter the Latin. Bless you, yes. (laughs) Is that pretty much the school choir for secular singing or secular songs? Yeah, it's, I mean, my, my Latin is a little bit rusty. But essentially, it's saying, yeah, it is, you know, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the music scholars who, mm. who, who celebrate profane music within Cambridge and perform it to lots of people, if you like. I think they were going through a, a learning curve at this point in time, and they even, shock horror, allowed some women to sing with the group in the mid-1960s. Uh, and that this is a question that we get asked very often. Why is it just six men and why can't women join? And really, that's just an accident. I mean, of course, there were no female voices in the choir at King's College in Cambridge written in by statute, although, mm. 
you know, there there are so many choirs within Cambridge and Oxford where women do have a place, quite rightly so. It's just an accident of history that this one happened not to. And really the group found that having the countertenor voices as the, the primary focus on top of the group made that unique sound. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking for their unique selling point, their USP. And there were other groups in the world that had female voices on top and they decided that they wanted to keep theirs with with men and just with the six voices and likewise the lineup two countertenors one tenor two baritones one bass pure accident they were the six voices who wanted to carry on singing they they had this teething period in the mid-1960s having left kings two of them were professional double bass players in orchestras uh, a couple of them were school teachers and in fact the lineup didn't crystallize until 1967 or so and one of the members in that initial concert in 1968 Tony Holt was actually an Oxford graduate from Christchurch he wasn't a Kingsman at all and that's something which which few people realize that it was five guys from Kings and one from Christchurch Oxford who are in the established lineup the lineup changed a few times in the, in that two three year period then it crystallized it stabilized and 1972 was there first big tour uh, uh, with the name The King's Singers. Mm. And I think it was Richard Armitage who was their then manager who said, boys, you should just stick to one name and it should be this. And thank goodness they did. Yes. Will you introduce The Little Green Lane, this traditional Irish tune? I'd love to. This is a, a favourite of most of ours in the group. I think probably all of ours, but the, the four lower voices sing it. It's mm-hmm. just a, a, a tenor, 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 baritone bass piece. I'm really fond of it because it, helps to highlight the rich tradition of folk music and I think that's been something that's very important to the King Singers from the word go the oral tradition of these wonderful melodies passed down through history Mm. and wherever we go around the world we like to listen to local folk songs arrange them and take them back to their place of birth as a bit of a gift now this particular example is an Irish folk tune and we didn't arrange this it's an old arrangement by Sidney Lovett who was a composer in the Edwardian period but it's just so beautifully, charmingly done. It's homophonic. It's not difficult on the page, but to make something of it, I mm. think, requires real skill. And it's something that we've loved putting together. Oh, little green lane, you're rough and you're plain. No beauty in you I'd be finding. But in the moon's light, your silver and bright is royal you are in your winding. For Molly, my queen, though in cabin so mean, reigns there in her own simple splendor. But she'll never learn that for her I yearn her leg grieve that pure heart so of green, more brilliant is seen, her soul from her eyes looks so brightly. My queen and my star, I worship afar, and never shall she hear my deep sighing. Sure she shall not grieve or ever believe We've just heard The Little Green Lane by the King Singers from their brand new celebratory album, 50 Years Being the King Singers, a multi-CD set. I'm speaking today with Christopher Gavitas and Julian Gregory, members of the group. There has to be a guiding force. When you're changing personnel every so many years, 
I mean, is it, shall we arm wrestle? Do we do the Lennon and McCartney song or do we do the other song? Or or is there a supreme office of Kane Singer somewhere that uh, <laughs> sends telegrams of what to do? How, how do you decide repertoire and tours and all of that? The King Singers, we pride ourselves on being a an equal partnership. And that's something that's been the case ever since the group formed. Of course, when the group formed, it was six peers at the same age, uh, friends all in the same year, um, at university together. As the years have gone on and uh, different people have been succeeded, there is naturally a change in ages, a change in um, sort of life experience as you join the group. So although we do adhere to the equal partnership, of course we're guided, you know, when you join at the very beginning, you're going to naturally want to listen to, you know, the advice of those around you and just sort of try to fit in. Right. Whereas the, the, the longer serving members, um, like Chris is the longest serving at the moment, would, of course, give his experience into the group. And so that hopefully not much changes too quickly so that you've, you've always got um, some sort of stability, which goes back to the core of what the group has been, what the King Singers has been. We have discussions about, um, you know, if there's a group decision to be made about something, we will have, you know, sometimes have a vote on things if there are disagreements. But generally, you know, we're happy to be led by the partner, the King Singer, who has the most experience in a particular area. Um, whether it's, you know, programming of Renaissance music or travel. You know, Johnny knows a lot about flights and good scheduling. Chris is our day-to-day. You know, Tim's the library man. So we, we go to each of, of, of us with our respective roles and, and, you know, see what they feel. In terms of performance, I think the most important thing in any organisation is that every member of the team feels valued. And so when we're in rehearsal, there is no musical director. Uh, as Julian said, we bring our different specialities. So Pat, the newest member, came out of university with a first-class music degree. Mm. And he knows a lot about Renaissance music and editing music and performance practice. So we defer to him because he has that knowledge. Mm. But we have the luxury of two hours rehearsal before each concert, and that time is not spent note-bashing or getting things right. It's spent fine-tuning and honing performance and creating shape and structure and beauty. Mm. And we spend that time allowing every member to put his view forward as to how we should shape any particular piece of music. And we have the luxury of 120 concerts a year. We can change things if we'd like to. But the benefit of that is that everybody gets heard and each member walks on stage feeling invested in the performance because you've had your chance to have your say. And I think there's a direct link between that feeling of being invested in the organisation and the longevity of tenure. People don't join this group and leave after three, four, five, six years. Mm. They stay for a long time. Partly that's because we don't audition each year like some groups do, which is, in my view, quite disruptive to the sound and to the structure. But secondly, it's that this wonderful organic sense of partnership is all pervading, meaning that in every decision we make, whether it's musical or offstage, we've had our say, we feel invested, and ultimately we all want the best thing for the group. So we're not going to dig our heels in if we can hear that something's not working. Let's hear something that definitely works, which is the King Singers singing Shenandoah.
We've just heard the traditional American tune, Shenandoah. The King Singers in studio today, Christopher Gabitas and Julian Gregory. We read that one of your members said that he gets the biggest buzz from passing his musical experience to the next generation of musicians through workshops the King Singers give all around the world. Tell me what you do at a workshop. It can vary. We like to present music to people of all ages and all abilities. And so the most basic thing that we can do is to go into a room where people may feel that they have little or no musical talent and present them with an hour-long lecture demonstration where we take them through in music, musical examples and words, what we do in the King Singers, how we make our sound, and we try to unlock some of the mystique behind being a professional touring musician. At the other end of the scale is a masterclass where we may work with one or more semi-professional or professional groups these are people who are out there making their living from this but they just want to be a bit better at what they do and you know very flatteringly they'd like us to give them a few pointers and over the years the roll call of people for whom the king singers have worked is extraordinary so we, we've taught the real group we've taught chanticleer we've taught all the major german groups that are doing so well at the moment and you know way before julian and i were in the group but notwithstanding that i think we're very fortunate to be regarded in the king singers as the sort of grandfathers of this modern a cappella genre and so that will be a very structurally intense forensic technical workshop where we're expecting very high standards and we want to push people to their limits and then there's everything in between we go to high schools we go to colleges in america very often these days our, our, our performances in the states are in education establishments and part of the remit is we will get you to do a concert but as a condition of our funding or just because it's what we do, we need you to provide some outreach, some masterclass work. And a classic example of that was at Viterbo up in La Crosse, Wisconsin, earlier this last week, where we had 300 high school students who came in and they sang And So It Goes With Us. And we spent an hour teaching them how to make some sounds and how to balance and how to blend and how to sing with no conductor, which is something they'd never done before with that wonderful Chilcot arrangement you heard earlier. And then the second day, we performed in concert with the Viterbo College Choir. So we had two very different levels of musicianship yes. there, but we were able to give the same message to them because really what we're propagating is a very simple idea. It's the idea of listening. Listening and breathing and trying to work as a team. And we firmly believe that there's as much value in being in a choir as there is in being on the football squad. What a great memory for those kids, especially. Julian, I think most people just think, King Singers, I go and I concertize. But it sounds like the workshops and other outreach things are really a big part of what you do. I think that area is growing in the group, to be honest. I I think we are getting more interested in education. But also, you know, social media lends itself to fans and audiences around the world being able to see more closely what we enjoy and what we get up to. And I think as part of that, a natural extension is then to want to show them things, want to show them how the intricacies of what we do. So a number of years ago, the King Singers created their first summer school off the back of a series of masterclasses that the group has given in Lübeck in Germany, in Schleswig-Holstein Festival. And so, yeah, now this is a, a biannual, once every two-year thing where we hold a summer school. In fact, we just had our first US summer school um, in Indiana, DePaul University, which has a wonderful music faculty. And so, yeah, it's just by sort of natural, organic process um, becoming ever more, you know, we're just trying to, you know, as well as do our 120 concerts a year, we're thinking how can we do something which is a little bit different that we very much enjoy and is giving back to the community of, of a cappella, which is growing bigger and bigger in today's world. Well, I appreciate the generosity, okay. as do all the people who are beneficiaries, I'm sure. Let's hear Don't Worry About Me. Will you tell me about this one, Julian? We were talking earlier about um, how do we make sure that we're constantly keeping relevant and um, not sort of getting old in in terms of our artistry. So uh, Don't Worry About Me is an arrangement um, by first barrister in the group Christopher Brewerton of a pop song by Francis, who is a Reading in the UK, a Reading-based singer-songwriter. It's a particularly beautiful song um, and it's one that we very much enjoy singing.
We just heard Don't Worry About Me, The King Singers. That's from Gold, their brand new multi-CD set, celebrating 50 years, a 50th anniversary season performing together. We're so pleased that you would be here and make time. Christopher Gavitas and Julian Gregory, do you have a favorite venue? Is that possible? I guess they're so different. But sonically, is there just a place where you think this building was made for us we're asked that question a lot and we normally give six different answers we, we'll go down the line and that's fine because because we're all such different people i think my favorite venue in the world i, I think it's the same as julian's it's often one that one that we both say which is the concert in amsterdam which ah. is the wonderful national concert hall if you like of the dutch people and it's a it's a very unprepossessing classically designed shoebox concert hall in many ways except that the way you gain the stage as an artist is that you come through one of two doors down around 50 steps on either side of the organ pipes and it's normally full you open the doors and the sound and the sight of these people clapping and welcoming you hits you and it's the most nerve-wracking experience to walk down these (laughs) steps but equally it's the most exhilarating and you feel as though you've conquered Everest by the time you reach the stage before you've even begun singing so the singing is pretty simple after that but (laughs) the whole atmosphere the generosity the warmth of the Dutch people generally they're some of the, the the nicest people on the face of the planet they know their music they certainly know their choral music and every experience I've had there has been very very special so that would have to be my my top hall. Julian same hall? Uh, yes, I concur. I mean, the just to... Do you take a minute to practice going down the stairs with no oh, railing? Oh, we yes. do. I got to go there the first time this summer. Oh, you did? And a soprano came down and she was singing as she walked. And I thought, you are a very brave oh. woman. 
we have to make sure that the soles of our shoes are also not too slippery because that red carpet, you know, you <laughs> hate to think there must have been a number of cases where people have slipped over. Um, yeah, that's one of, that is for sure one of my favourite consoles. Sonically, perhaps even trumping that would be the Kerner Hall in Toronto. That is, in terms of the sonic experience, mm. quite remarkable. We have time for one final song. I was hoping, hoping, hoping this would be on the list, and it is. And it's also one, Chris, that you arranged. Tell me about taking Scarborough Fair. The harmonies are so beautiful. There's almost like little trumpet fanfares in the voices as I listen. Tell me about arranging this. Well, I have to be completely open and say that I was inspired to arrange this by a track which appeared on the King Singer's debut album back in the early 70s. And that was arranged by Simon Carrington, my direct predecessor as second baritone in the group. And he arranged it for the King Singers and for a trio. He was one of the double bassists in the group. And so he was a big fan of the sort of double bass, piano and kit trio. And the groups worked with a lot of that configuration over the years. And it's always been a folk song that's really spoken to me. And I loved the way that Simon and Garfunkel, you know, rearranged it in the 1970s with their sort of almost anti-war message, I suppose, of the time. Um, it was the time of Vietnam, of course. And so there were lots of different strengths of feeling going on. And they took a, what what is essentially a rather bitter folk song with, with a young lady unrequited love and the young lady's setting her boyfriend impossible tasks or, or her would-be boyfriend impossible tasks that he can't possibly fulfill and i think that the message that simon and garfunkel were trying to put in a layer over that folk song was the futility of conflict i suppose in so many ways and and that rings true today as much as ever it did you know we're certainly not i don't think we're ridiculous pacifists in the king singers but i think we're very very real about what happens in the world and because of our travels and the fact that we meet so many people from different cultures as i said earlier we we are all at one in so many ways and this song spoke to me in politically i suppose as well as musically and i thought i'd love that to be on the 50th it will come full circle from the debut album and so i took simon carrington's arrangement as my inspiration worked from that point and tried to use thematic material which would speak to the text and hopefully add a few more layers to it so I'm, I'm delighted that you enjoy it Oh, 
justly sage was merry and tired. Remember me to one who lives there, to one who lives she once was a true love of Scarborough Fair from the album Gold with the King Singers. I've been so pleased. What a pleasure to talk with Christopher Gabitas and Julian Gregory of the King Singers. Julian, thank you. Congratulations thank you so on on your growing tenure. Thank you so much. Your Such beautiful a voice. And Chris, on the years, uh, you're, you're sort of one of the guiding hands, it sounds like, at this point. And it sounds like the group benefits much from what you do. Thank you. We're happy to have the King Singers here on campus. Glad we could speak with them. Uh, and a little a little note of interest. Second only to the Utah Symphony, the King Singers have visited BYU more often than any other visiting performing group we've had on campus during the 100-year history of the university's performing arts series. So thank wow. you for wow. gracing us there quite often. We feel very honored. You can find out more about this very special 50th year for the King Singers by visiting www.kingssingers.com. Two S's for King's Singers. If you just caught part of the show and would like to hear the beginning or listen again or share it with a friend, it's easy to do. All of our shows are archived online for free on-demand listening at byuradio.org slash highway89. Follow us on Twitter at BYUH89 for live show updates and special behind-the-scenes photos and video clips. Highway 89 is a production of BYU Broadcasting in Provo, Utah. Our recording engineer is Mark Waite. Our student assistants are Abby Vance and Victoria Hardy. Our producer is Sam Payne. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.